Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Oh. Oh, it's early for some of you all. How you doing this morning? Amen. Say it like men. <laughs> all right, show of hands. How many of you are morning people? Oh, good. They're mostly right here in the middle. So if you want to throw fruit, you throw it right here. And how many of you, like me, uh, the morning is just a means to lunch? You know, it's just how we get to the next meal, you know, it's suffer through that. Well, for those of you who are morning people, we want you to use your gifts to serve the rest of the body, all right? And pray for those of us who are, who are not precisely morning people. Uh, I have to agree with Mac. You all, you all look good. You look all right. It's good to look out upon you and to be together as brothers. It's good to hear you singing out God's praises. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed uh, the, the entire uh, team up here leading us in praise of God, but I particularly enjoyed watching the brothers on the guitars. I mean, they were, they were having a good time, and, and, and my brother Theo was bringing a little rhythm to the bass there, man. I was like, I was like check him out, man. I've never, I've never sung, and can it be like that? You know, man? <laughs> you know, that's all right. I like that. I like that. Praise God. <laughs> well, our first question this morning is, what is biblical manhood? And, um, Either this demonstrates an incredible um, vote of confidence in the morning speaker or it demonstrates an incredible lack of foresight to assign such a massive topic to 40 minutes of conversation. But we're going to do the best that we can. You know the story of the African-American uh, who, who grew up in, in southeastern United States, grew up in a sort of church family who, who moved to Dubai and uh, sort of matured in Dubai, you know, went into a profession, married, a, married his wife there, raised his family there, and, and he was at church, a church just like Redeemer or UCCD, some, some 10 years into his marriage, his little boy is about five or six years old, and, and lo and behold, they announced that there was going to be a guest preacher, an African-American preacher who was, who was coming to, to preach and, and was bringing with him many, many members of his church, and uh, his, the, he was sort of happy about that. He it was an opportunity to introduce his son, who'd never been to the States, to, to sort of a bit of his own culture. And uh, so th- that Sunday or that Friday morning, they gather in the church, and uh, it's like a cultural expedition for his son. You know, this pastor had brought with him many members of his church, and even his choir, his choir was singing that morning, and the choir sort of burst through the back doors, rocking. Theo was leading them, you know, and, and they, they were bouncing, and the little boy said, wow, what's that? And the boy said, well, that's the choir. You know, that's, that's how they make their intro. You know, it's how we do it, where we're from, you know. And uh, the choir sings and goes on. And, and there were some older ladies that had traveled with them, all dressed in white and big hats. I said, Dad, who are those women? Are they angels? I said, no, son, those, those are more powerful than angels. Those are, the <laughs> those are mothers of the church, you know. <laughs> the pastor comes to the pulpit, you know, dressed in robe, and he, comes up to the pulpit and said, point the time for the sermon, and he takes off his watch with a, a grand sweep of his robe, and he places the watch on the pulpit, and the little boy says, Dad, what does that mean? And that says, absolutely nothing, son. <laughs> absolutely nothing. So I'm going to do my best to keep time up here. It may mean absolutely nothing. Mac was, Mac was kind in his introduction. Uh, I, I appreciate the regards. But let, let, me, let me start this first session, this first question, what, what is biblical manhood? Let me start it with an admission. 
Uh, my dad left when I was 13. And uh, I didn't know at the time, but that was a huge poverty that just entered my life. It's a huge vacuum. So at the time where I was entering into the most confusing stage of life for, for most young boys, for most young men, I was without the most important example. Which meant that becoming a man, knowing what it is to be a man, all that good stuff, well, as Max said, that was, that was utterly bewildering to me. So on the one hand, there was, there was the locker room man kind of image. You know, you're in the locker room, you're boasting with the guys about your exploits. Most of it lies. Well, all of it lies. <laughs> and, and there was a sort of gridiron man or the basketball man, that sort of, sort of prowess, not necessarily in relationship with women, but prowess on the court, prowess over other men, competitor, champion, so on and so forth. And yes, Mac, 50 pounds ago, I could ball. You know. There are all these kind of confusing messages about, messages about manhood and what it, what it meant to be a man. And you know, the most, even, even, even into my 20s, even to my 30s, and, and I'm going to shock some of you, even now at 40, I, I know, I, I look 20. <laughs> and most of you are thinking, oh, 55, maybe, you know, gray hair. Even now, Alpha male games are the most bewildering games to me. Relating to other men is, is sometimes the most difficult thing for me. Uh, even, even, even growing up in school and in college, I mean, there, there was this sense of just out of proportion, overreaction, underreaction on the one hand, overreaction on the other hand. Either everything looked like a nail that needed to be hammered to me, or, or I just, you know, wilted away. A sense of balance, a sense of confidence, a sense of the sense of strength, a sense of knowing what it was to be a man is just lacking. And I suspect that that I'm not the only one making it up as I go along. I suspect I'm not the only one who's had to try and figure this out. And the good news is God has not left us without help. Even those of us who didn't have fathers in the home in those critical times or those who had fathers in the home who, who weren't present, or those who had fathers in the home who, who honestly weren't good examples of manhood, we're not left without a witness. We're not left without help. And for us to consider that help, uh, to begin answering this big question, I, I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 2. I want us to turn to the beginning, as it were, and to answer this question, what is biblical manhood? To answer it not from the perspective of culture, which sometimes can be confusing. Answer it not from the perspective of, of competition, which we men always feel like we're, we're in in one sort or the other. Answer it not from the perspective of just sort of our own individual preferences, our desires for our lives and, and what we want to be. But to, to answer it with something more enduring, something unchanging, something, something more powerful and more profound, something more, more useful and enlightening, something more quickening and life-giving. Let's answer it with God's Word. Genesis chapter 2, for our first talk, which will bleed a little bit into our second talk, I want to answer this question in two parts. Sort of want to consider how Genesis 2 defines manhood as a as a cluster of relationships. That in part, manhood is defined by how we're related to three things. How we're related to God, 
how we are related to the creation and how we're related to society. How we're related to God, how we're related to creation, and how we're related to society. You might think of those as the three W's of, of manhood. Worship, work, and women. Right? Having done that, I want us to look then into Genesis chapter 3, and I want us to sort of get a real good look at what has happened to us as men, particularly in the fall, and in how the fall corrupts those relationships. And not just the fall, the ruin of manhood, but, but to just sort of take a preview into the restoration of manhood, to look forward beyond the fall to Christ and what Christ does in restoring what was ruined. So we're going to start there, and then, Lord willing, that will lay foundation for us in our second talk as we think about uh, leadership in the church and manhood in the church. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We find that on page 2 of the Bible. We'll begin reading at verse 1, and then we'll work through the chapter, sort of smelling some of the roses in this field. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the depths of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the, three, were the, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was, is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, aromatic resin and onyx and are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Praise God for his word. The first thing we want to think about this morning, our definition of of biblical manhood, is, is this relationship of man to three things. First of all, man's relationship to God. It's a relationship of, of worship, really. The, the chapter opens with this summary statement, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And then I, I want to suggest that Genesis 2 teaches us two things about man's relationship to God, or, or teaches us that a biblical man is a worshiping man. I contend that what you saw in part this morning and what you participated in, in part this morning, in public praise to God, and in the offer of worship daily, was a demonstration of biblical manhood, was a demonstration of what it means to be a man as God has designed us to be. First of all, we, we see this taught in, in this discussion about the Sabbath. We see this taught in the discussion about the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 tells us of the final day in the work of creation, day 7, which was the Sabbath rest. God ceases from all his creative labor, all the work that he had been doing in creation, and he makes that day holy. He blesses the day, sets it apart, sanctifies it, his own use. Imagine if you could, uh, if you could build a, a shrine or a temple for worshiping God. Only it's not a shrine made of stones and bricks and mortar, but a shrine made of time. That's sort of what the Sabbath is. It is this, it is this temporal shrine of worship, this, this time and space for, for communion with, with God. It's a day of rest, but it's more than a day of rest. The, the Sabbath is a sign of, of covenant relationship with God. And, and, and we see that with Israel. So in Exodus 3, uh, verse 13 and verse 17, we, we read things like, Say to the Israelites, you, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a, a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. The Sabbath is this sign of covenantal relationship with God. And, and the holiness, the, the, sancti- the sanctification, the, the sanctity that God creates with his people via that relationship. As you know, the Sabbath becomes a, a part of the, the Mosaic law given to Israel. And as a part of the law, it's, it's meant to point us really beyond ourselves and, and beyond that temporary day of rest in this life, to a much, a much greater reality. The, the Sabbath is a, is a type of Christ. It is, it is a picture of Jesus Christ. So we read in, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found to Christ. We read in the Read in the New Testament that the, that the law prophesied until Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ has become our, our Sabbath rest. We see that in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, or we see that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. So, so here at the very beginning in creation, in the seventh day, where God ordains a Sabbath rest, God is... 
God is in, in one sense pointing to us to, to the very sort of fundamental thing we are as, as creatures, as human beings, and particularly as men. We're worshipers. We're meant to commune with God. We're meant to, to celebrate this relationship with him. And the Sabbath points us to that. We're made for a perpetual Sabbath. And that's why a true man, a, a biblical man, is, is first and foremost a worshiper. But we, we see this notion again in, in something else in our text, in, in the creation account here. In verses 4 to 7, we see this, this kind of intimacy that, that goes on between a, a true man and, and his God. Beginning in verse 4, we're told how, how God made man. In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, we're told of God's decision to make man in his own image and likeness. And here in chapter 2, verse 7, we're told that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life, and the man became a, a living being. Notice the change. There's an interesting change from chapter 1 to chapter 2. In chapter 1, we're simply told that God, Elohim, did this and created that. But beginning in chapter 2, we're told that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the heavens and earth, and formed a man. Why the switch? Well, just as the Sabbath is an indication of the intended relationship and intimacy between God and man, so is this name change. Yahweh is God's covenantal name. It's a name of relationship, of bond, or, or intimacy. And, that, and intimacy gets pictured in part in verse 7, where we're formed and breathe are, are the acts of God's creation. The, the picture is meant to communicate to us that, that with his own hands, God fashioned man like a, like a potter, uses his hand to, to fashion clay and to, into jars and, and artistry. So, brothers, we are the, the artistry of God's creation, apex of God's creation. And where there's artistry, there is, there is intimacy, knowingness, contact, connection between the artist and the, and the artwork. And then the Lord breathes life into the man and becomes a living soul. Again, that act, of, that act of breathing into him is an act of, of God giving something of himself to his creation. It's, a, it's reminiscent of, of Christ Jesus himself breathing on the disciples after the, after the resurrection and giving them new life. It's an act of self-giving, of love, of intimacy. And this is what we were created for. Most fundamental thing for us to recognize about what it is to be a biblical man is to recognize we were created for intimate worship with God. We dare not think that intimacy is a feminine word. We dare not think that being related to God, knowing God, being close to God is, is for the ladies of the church. It is what men are made for. To know their covenant-keeping God closely is what God calls us to. Now, I think as, as brothers, we, we need that sometimes pressed onto our hearts. I, I think we need the notion that we are made to worship sort of repeatedly pressed into us. Because, because honestly, I mean, let's face it, I mean, you don't have to raise hands, show up hands of anything, but they're, they're not a shortage of men who think that really... Church is for the ladies. Worship is for the ladies. I, I even know some brothers who will only show up for the sermon because that, that feels more manly. 
The singing's a little too cute. And honestly, some of the singing is a little cute. Yeah, you know, singing to Jesus, lover of my soul. You know, that's, that's just, you know. You know, the lace doilies up front and the flowers. I mean, you know, we will let the ladies do the flower settings. I mean, you know. But that's sort of really not the it. We, we need that sort of brushed out of our minds. And, and we need to understand that it is part of our masculinity to know God, to know him deeply, to love him, to be loved by him, to be close to him, to commune with him. And we can't abdicate that and regard ourselves as men. We, we can't punt on that and regard ourselves as men. We can't decide it's for our wives to take the children to church. And you know what? We'll watch the game and regard ourselves as men. It's not what God has made us to be. It's made us to worship him. There's more we can say about that and we will say about that. Let me, let me move to the second relationship here. Man in relation to the creation or his work or if you like his wealth. And how he is related to wealth and related to work. So we see that in verses 8 to 17. After being created, Adam is, is placed in the Garden of Eden. And you see the description that we're given of that land, of its, of its gold and precious stones and, and things that exist in that land that, that today communicate to us tremendous value, tremendous wealth. Eden, which loosely means pleasant or paradise, is, is a place where man is intended to, to really dwell with God. So just as the Sabbath is a, is a temporal shrine, the garden is a, is, is a kind of physical temple in the, in the creation. It's the, it's the meeting place between God and man. And in the garden, man is given work to do. He is to work and take care of the garden. Adam is the priest of the garden. For the remainder of Scripture, it's interesting. I think this is the case. This phrase, work and take care of, is only used of the temple priests. There's a, there's a priestly function here. And that illustrates how, how sacred a relationship man has to, to creation and the call to work and the call to stewardship wealth. Adam is to cultivate the vegetation that God has already placed there, and he's to protect it from intrusion. He is to extend God's dominion and glory from, from this central place of paradise to the, to the ends of the earth. He is to subdue the earth and to fill it with glory. That is to be the objective of his work in society, the spreading of, of God's glory, of his, of his weight, of his fame, of his, of his name, of his honor, of his, of his likeness as priests of the one true God. That's what we're called to. And in this account, this account of, of our creation, the, the theme of dominion is, is just, you know, richly there. It's given dominion over the creation. But despite Adam's rulership over all things, he's, he's to remember that while he has a real dominion, it's really a reflection, an image, a shining forth, of God's ultimate dominion. So he's told that he may eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this prohibition is good for Adam. It reminds Adam of his creatureliness before God and the, the limits of that creatureliness. 
And just as all creation is to bow the knee to Adam as Adam subdues the earth, well, Adam in turn bows his knee to God. He's the one who really is ruler over all. Now this idea of glory is important for manhood. I recommend a book to you. I don't know if it's on the table. Uh, if you can get it, it'd be wonderful. Dave Harvey's little book, Rescuing Ambition. It's a wonderful treatment of, of godly ambition. And I think if, if you're observing men today, if I'm even half accurate about one of the besetting struggles of men today, it's this issue of glory seeking. You have men who are either not ambitious at all. You know, they're happy to have graduated from high school or college and to live with mom for the rest of their lives, you know? You know, their, their idea of a, of, a, of a Sabbath rest is, is cricket on the television, a bowl of Cheerios, and, you know, laying around in their pajamas. Or you have men who are hungry for their own glory. Their work is a means to glory, but not God's, but their own. They work and make an idol of their own name, of their own fame, of their own possession of work. And they yield themselves not to the spread of God's glory, but their own. Now, I think there's an instinct in there that we're given here in the creation. I think there's an impulse there that God gives us that in part defines us as men. We all instinctively know that a man who, work, who doesn't work is not a man at all. It's not, it's not just what Paul says in Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That was my, it seemed like my mother's favorite Bible verse. <laughs> you know, she was raising five boys, and some of us were a little lazy in our teen years, and, and she'd walk around the house, a man don't work, you don't eat. You know, and uh, she pressed that home on us. It's not just that. It's sort of what Nietzsche says when he says, a, a man without a plan is not a man at all. We might say a man without a plan to work, to subdue the creation, to the glory of God, is not a man at all. So we're made to worship, and we're made to work. And that, that pursuit of work, and that pursuit of God's glory in work, is central to what it is to be a biblical man, and to live as God has designed us to live, as his image bearers as his vice-regents, as those who exercise dominion over the earth as priests to the Most High God. Now, a couple words of application here as we, we think about this work issue, because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a real problem for many men. And it seems to me, you tell me if I'm wrong in the Q&A or in the break, but it seems to me that Dubai is a, has a work culture that might be a lot like the work culture of, of Grand Cayman for many people or the work culture of Washington, D.C., those are the areas that, that, that I know best. It's a work culture that, that really tends toward overwork. It's a work culture that really tends toward acquisition as an ends in and of itself. Not, not toward the glory of God in all things. And so as brothers, one of the things we're challenged with, one of the besetting sins then that this tempts us to, is to give ourselves to work as an end in and of itself and to neglect some other things that we're called to as men. Worship being one of the the chief and first casualties. Family being another. So a couple suggestions for us here. Number one. Seek balance in this area by integrity. 
make integrity, and I'll tell you what I mean by this, the main means toward balance as a man. We, 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 we sometimes talk with brothers about sort of work-life balance and giving too much time to work and not enough time to other things. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting to you in this first point that balance might not be the right term. That integrity would be the right term. In, in other words, the vision isn't that we compartmentalize our lives such that we worship, quote-unquote, for two hours on Sunday, but we give the rest of our lives and our minds to, to work and the workplace throughout the rest of the week. No, I think we're to make our work an integral part of our worship lives. So that in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, we, we read from the Apostle Paul, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So the question for us is, just as it was a question for Adam in the garden, subduing the earth and tending to animals and so forth, the question for us is, is our work an act of worship? Now be careful here, because if you're tempted to overwork, you might use that as a religious justification for your sin of overwork. But is our work an act of worship? Is it integral to how we see ourselves as priests the Lord has left in the earth to subdue it and to bring him glory? So seek balance by that kind of integration. That work is one of the things you do in all of life as an expression to worship the God. And so therefore it's never in competition with the other things you do in all of life as priorities in the worship of God. Balanced by integrity. A second thing here, prioritized by denial. Prioritized by denial. As I said, there's some workaholics among us. You don't have to raise your hand. We know who you are. <laughs> some workaholics among us who cannot distinguish between working as unto the Lord and work as an idol. So I want to help you with that just a little bit. Those men who can't make that distinction, they sacrifice their wives and their children to the Moloch's and the Baals of career and prestige. You know you do that if you've never considered turning down a promotion. You know you probably do that if you've never considered saying to your employer, no, I must go home on time today. If every request to work longer and every promotion carrying with it more responsibility drawing you further from family and further from other areas of worship which should have a priority, if you answer every one of those opportunities with a yes, it may be that works an idol for you. Saying no to our idols is what frees us from them. And if the thought of saying no to a promotion or spending more time at work, so on and so forth, if that causes you more panic than the thought of neglecting your wife and neglecting your children, your work's probably an idol. Whether it's the work itself and the enjoyment you derive out of the work, or whether it's fear of man, fear of your boss, and inability to say no. So, prioritize by denial. Put the, put the big rocks in first. I, I once had an exercise, this guy on a beach or something, and he had this jar sort of close at the top and slightly wider at the bottom, but it was a jar filled with all kinds of rocks. 
And he would challenge people to, to sort of you know, figure out how he could put all those rocks in there, some big rocks, some small rocks, and, and how it would work. And, and many people, you, you're doing this little exercise, and you've got different strategies, and some people try to put the sand in and try to put the big rocks in, and the big rocks, would, you, you inevitably wouldn't have enough room to put the big rocks in. And, and he would tell people as sort of an object lesson, no, the, the way you do this, the way you fill the jar with both big rocks and small rocks is you put the big rocks in first and you shake down the small rocks around them. And, and that's how we have to live as men. We have to put the big rocks in first. Christ and service to Christ. Wife and family. And shake down the small rocks around them. Work and promotion and recreation and so forth. And so prioritize by denial. Uh, a final thing in, this, in the way of application. I've already said it. Uh, I'll say it again, particularly for the benefit of, of some of you younger men uh, who, are, who are about to head into the workforce. A man who will not work is not a man. Working and working to the glory of God is central to what God has made us to be. Well, let's look at this third relationship then. Man in relationship to society and family, uh, particularly women. We see that in verses 16 to 25, the last part of the chapter there. This is a, this picture of marriage along with a Sabbath rest that opens the chapter uh, really forms kind of two bookends making similar points at the same point. Man is, man is bent to be related to God. But it also teaches us that man is to be related to something else. And that's human society. You see that animals are brought to Adam for naming, demonstrating his authority over creation as a reflection of God's ultimate authority. But also the animals are brought to him to demonstrate something else, to make him aware of something that, that he ought to know. Namely, verse 18, God looks upon Adam and says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Adam needs to know this if he's going to participate effectively in God's social design. God looks at Adam and looks at a man alone says he's incompetent. He's not able to do what I've called him to do apart from some help, right? apart from a woman, apart from a wife. This is why normally most of us will marry. It's normal for most men to marry. It's not a command to marry. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 gives, gives men freedom in that regard. And I don't mean to leave you with the impression and an unmarried man is, is somehow less than a man or um, a, a, a cursed man in some sense. I don't mean to give you that impression. But I do mean to say that normally when it comes to pursuing the glory of God in the subduing of the creation and, and in the worship of God and in filling the earth with image bearers, children, men need women. We, we don't have children alone. You know that, right? Okay. All right, all right. So man's participation in God's design primarily and fundamentally takes the form of marriage as an enduring relationship to women. So, so God creates woman out of Adam's side as a helper suitable to him. As a helper, she is to, to, as one writer puts it, honor his vocation, to share his enjoyment, and to respect the prohibition. In other words, to obey God's law with him. And as a suitable helper, she is equal and adequate 
The dignity of her role is, is seeing the fact that the word helper is used in 16 of 19 times in the Old Testament for God himself. Her, her contribution is essential, and without her, Adam is, is incompetent to perform God's call in his life. It's not good for man to be alone. I love the way Matthew Henry comments on this. He says the, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that beautiful? Adam himself, in, in verse 23, celebrates God's gift of, of a wife to him with, with that poem there. He breaks out in song. And marriage among men is to be, to be celebrated. How, how beneath God's design is it for us to talk about the, the ball and chain, the old lady, the nag? How beneath our calling in God to belittle our wives, to joke about them publicly, to disparage them. They are gifts to us, to complete us, and to make us more of what God has called us to be, true men. You know, the, the most dignified men are men who, who, who boast about their wives in a godly way, who honor their wives, who, who speak highly of their wives when their wives are not around, you know, whose, whose speech is always full of flowers for their wives, who break out in song over their wives as Adam does here, who recognizes their incompetence and incompleteness without their wives. And so we're called to be men who are related to our wives and, and to receive them as helpers, but, but that also puts us in a place, as one writer puts it, of inescapable headship of inescapable leadership. That here from the onset, man is designed by God to be leaders. Part of what it means to be a man is, in fact, to be a leader. Some of us will be differently gifted as leaders. Some of us will be more effective in different arenas as leaders. But make no mistake, wherever we go as men, we are indeed leaders by God's design. We can't delegate that. We can't phone that in. We can't leave that undone. It's who we're made to be. We're made as men to be leaders. And the choice that confronts us is either we will flourish in that role and accept that role, or, or we, will, we will actually sin against our own nature by trying to duck and dodge that role. And brothers, I've been guilty of that. I've been completely guilty of that. That when I was having a conversation just the other day, we were talking about leadership. And so, you know, man, for much of my life, I just ran away from that. Ran away from the responsibility of it, didn't want to feel the, the burden of it, and, and just wanted to do me. Just selfish and inward. And, and really neglecting who God made me to be. I can still do that. I can still have weeks in my home where, where you know, I'm just not leading the way I need to. You know, where, where, you know, I'm happy for my wife to do a few things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. And, I, and I'm happy to, to see my, my son playing a video game rather than dad kicking the ball with him, walking around the block with him. I, I think that, and we'll talk about this later, when we come to Genesis 3, 
Adam points at Eve and says, the woman you gave me, well, she's the one that made me sin. I think we're getting a picture there of the besetting sin of men. The abdication of leadership. If women are going to be tempted in Genesis 3 to usurp the man's responsibility, I think what Genesis 3 pictures for us as men is that that the besetting sin we will face, the constant struggle we will face, will be to abdicate leadership. Let somebody else do it. And phone it in. Well, she wants to do it anyway, so I, I don't want to fight. You know, and that's how I see it most often in pastoral counseling. Couples come to me frustrated. She really wants him to lead, but, but she's, sort of, she's sort of strong-willed, and, and she's sort of grabbing onto things, and, 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 and she's justifying it by saying, well, he won't do it. You know, so I, I've, got, I've got to do it. And he's saying, I don't want to fight, man. I come home from work and I'm tired and, you know, I, I let her do it. And the more she does it, the more she's frustrated. And the more, abdi- the more he abdicates, the less he feels like what? A man. Because we were made to lead. We were made to lead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, too. He's going to be talking about public worship in that section of, of the letter of Corinthians. And it's interesting. He says that the head of every woman is man. And the head of man is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. And when we talk about church leadership, he appeals to the creation order. Man was made first. So man is put in this position of inescapable leadership, of inescapable headship. And brothers, it is good It is right for us to embrace this. It is right for us to flourish in this. And some of us, like myself, need to be taught how to do it. So it's it's right for us to come alongside other men and say, hey, help me with this. It doesn't make you less of a man to appeal to another man. Brother, I see you with your family. I see you with your children. Honestly, I admire you. I respect you for what I see in this. Help a brother out. That's godly. That's how it is we begin to put one foot in front of the other to flourish in the role that God calls us to. A role of leadership. A role of of being related to our wives in particular and and more generally in the church to women as heads. As those who give leadership, who give direction, who give vision, who make decisions, who serve in that way. Let Let me say something to you that might serve you if you're hearing this and you're, you're feeling by God's Spirit some conviction and a desire to, to sort of change things. Praise God for that. Pray to Him for yet more courage and more, more wisdom in how to do that. But, but let, me, let me say something. When you look at Ephesians 5 and Paul says, man is the, the husband is the head of the wife, that's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's not an imperative. Not a command. So as the Lord convicts and encourages and guides you, don't go home and say, woman, I'm about to be the head today. <laughs> You're going to see some headship around this house. Uh, you ain't seen it yet, but here it comes, you know. It's going to be bad. You know. No, don't do that. I don't want you to get yourself hurt. <laughs> I don't want you to get yourself hurt now. <laughs> you know what you do you go home you tell your wife you love her you you honor her with the flowers of your lips 
and you say, pray for me. I want to serve you. And you just start serving. Because if you've not been leading, you just can't come in there and rubber stamp it. You actually have to cultivate trust. You've actually got to cultivate the kind of consistency that makes her want to lean on you. That makes her want to stand behind you. If your wife has a submission problem, it may be because she has a sinful heart in that area. It may also be because she's learned through our inconsistency it's unsafe to trust our leadership. The surest way to help her with her heart then is for us to humbly be consistent, to serve, to engage, to enter into life with her, to, as it were, not, not, not sort of think of her as made from your feet to be trampled on, but made from your side to be, to be protected and to be brought near to your heart. So repentance looks like humility here. And repentance looks like service. It looks like honoring your wife, caring for your wife, giving yourself for your wife as Christ did for the church. Okay? So let's, um, let's move on. Then we're running a little long in the teeth here. I got way more that I want to say than, than I ought to say given the time. But let me, let me move into Genesis 3 and just make a few observations there. Genesis 3, of course, is the fall. This is where Adam and Eve disobey God. This is where they they decide to eat from that one tree that he has forbidden. And in their rebellion, in their transgression, sin enters the world, and with sin, death. But it's also where, because of sin, All that God has called Adam to be in his relationship to God, in his relationship to society, in his relationship to women, in his relationship to the creation, in his worship, in his work, in his his marriage, all of that is twisted. There's nothing that sin has not corrupted. There's nothing that, that sin has not brought death to. So for example now, um, in his relationship with God. Alienation enters the relationship between God and man. Adam and Eve used to meet with God in the, in the cool of the day in verse 8. But after sin, flaming swords and angels are camped outside the garden to keep man from God. Their holiness is so, their sin is so defiling. And God's holiness is so pure. They are banished from Eden. Cast from his presence. And even those that are going over to Genesis chapter 4, who, who at one time talked with God and walked with God, they have a relationship affected by sin. Cain once spoke with God, knows God by voice. And his heart is hard toward God. His offerings are corrupt. And God knows his heart, that his offerings are not true worship. So we see this distortion in the relationship between God and man such that in our sin we are separated from God and and in our sin God is angry, he is wrathful, and he is justly so toward us. There's a ruin that sin brings and and there's a broken relationship with creation. So in Genesis chapter 3 verses 17 and 18, the earth is cursed because of Adam's sin. So much so that the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that the entire creation groans and travail awaiting the, the redemption, the adoption of the sons of God. 
Sin just flushes the natural creation into corruption. Verse 17, roses now have thorns. Where do natural disasters come from? Like the one we're praying for and mourning over in Japan. They have their origin in sin. And a creation cast into chaos through sin. In fact, there's nothing natural about natural disasters. It's unnatural. It's the ruin of creation. This was not how God made the world. It's how sin corrupted the world. And work here, notice, work which was meant to be for the glory of God and to extend his dominion over all the creation. Notice here, work becomes sweaty, painful toil. Work was meant to be a source of pleasure and meaning and reward to reflect the the activity of God in creation. But now sin has made it difficult, backbreaking, at times heartbreaking. And our sin makes us want to avoid the very thing God has created us for when it comes to our relation to his creation. Broken relationship with society, marriage and family. Adam and Eve's sin involved a a reversal of the roles, of the creation roles, as Adam abdicated leadership and Eve usurped it, stepping into that vacuum. And rather than Adam leading his wife and Eve helping her husband, Eve led the family to, to eat and Adam went along. Abandoning his God-given role and responsibility as a man and a husband. So the curses reflect this tendency, as we said earlier, for men to abdicate and women to usurp. Chapter 3, verse 16, a woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. A leadership that was meant to be combined with love and to help women flourish has now become a tyranny a corruption, and oppression. Marriage intended to reflect the glory of God's love for his people is, is misshapen into polygamy, adultery. Just five generations after Adam, Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, Lamech takes two wives. Even childbirth is affected. Now there's pain in labor. So Genesis 3 to 4 give us a rather complete picture of of sin, of its nature and its effects. And and this is the fall of humanity from that good life that God established in the creation. And so we're reminded as men, the words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the ruin of the creation. But now even in Genesis 3, there are hints at the restoration of creation. Genesis 3, 15, God is in the middle of pronouncing a curse on the serpent for his rebellion. And in verse 15, in the middle of this curse, we find this prophetic announcement regarding the seed of the woman. It's an interesting phrase, really, the seed of the woman. We normally think of the seed of men. But God essentially declares... War on the serpent and war against sin. He places enmity or hostility between the serpent and the woman and between the offspring or seed of the serpent and the offspring or seed of the woman. The Lord spoils Eve's relationship and communication with the serpent in order to preserve her and her offspring. Her seed is to crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent 
bruises his heel. And that seed theme and that warfare runs throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Indeed, throughout the rest of Scripture. You see the hostility between Eve's seed and the serpent's seed and the conflict between Cain and Abel. The one who offers acceptable sacrifices. And the one who doesn't and grows angry and bitter toward God. And in the genealogies throughout the Bible, as God is sovereignly selecting the younger brother, not the older brother, or this brother rather than that brother, you see that seed theme weaving throughout the scripture until the true seed of the woman, until the virgin-born Son of God comes, Christ Jesus. It's he who crushes the serpent's head and has his heel bruised in that singular and marvelous act of his crucifixion and resurrection. For Satan would seem to prevail for a moment, but Christ is raised in victory. The hostility between God and man is ended as the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus Christ upon that cross. And as he endures and swallows and takes upon himself the wrath of God against man because of their sin, satisfying the justice of God. And as he provides and offers himself as perfect righteousness to God. A way is open for sinners to, as it were, re-enter Eden. A way is open for sinners to enter in again the life that we were intended to make to live. And that way is repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that faith, in that trust, in that renewal, really, we find ourselves being born again, and we find ourselves being restored to the image of God through union with Christ until one day we will finally and completely and thoroughly and irrevocably reflect his likeness and his glory. And John promises that when we see him, we shall be like him. Even now, those of us who have seen him with the eyes of faith, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Even now, we're being made into real men. For Christian men are the most real men on the planet. Men who worship God. Men who live for his glory. Men who honor their wives and love their wives and so reflect his love for his own bride. This is what it is in sketch to be a real man. To trust Christ. To worship him. To work for him. To love for him. If you're here this morning and you've not yet crossed that line to put your trust in Christ, to believe upon his sacrifice as your righteousness and your atonement with God and to follow him as your Lord, I pray you would do so even now. And I pray you talk with those Christian brothers around you that we might encourage you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Genesis. We thank you for your word there. We thank you for this brief picture of what you intend us to be as men. And we thank you that you have not left us alone to try and achieve this in our own strength. Rather, Lord, through Christ your Son, you have been at work in us to renew us, to conform us to your image and your likeness. And you have placed us in the 
in the fellowship of your church, in the company of an army of men from whom we may draw strength and draw encouragement and help, from whom we may learn to live as you have called us to. So Lord, teach us. Teach us to be men. Teach us to to live for you, to work for you, to love for you, to bring you glory. Oh Lord, make us what you have us to be, men of God, for the praise of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, the Yeah. Okay, we're going to um, move into a time of Q&A. We have about 15 minutes uh, to do the question and answer. I just want to encourage you, when you ask questions, to keep it short and simple and uh, have your questions um, that pertain to the talk. You ask those questions. Um, so if you... you... You missed that note. That, that, that anyone who doesn't ask a short question will suffer public ridicule. <laughs> no, no. He didn't have that there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Real men shouldn't lie, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so um, if you have a question, one of our ushers will bring the mics to you. Um, just raise your hands and um, they'll get the mic to you. That's a brother over there. Thank you, brother, for leading, raising your hand first, being an example. No pressure. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Thabiti. Uh, I wanted to ask particularly around the, the, the last uh, point in, in the sense of uh, the, the relationship in society, particularly women. Um, looking at leadership in the family, looking at leadership in the church, um, what about in society? Um, so what's the place of women? in society um, pertaining, to, pertaining to leadership it's a great question um, yeah it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> question um, what, I, what I didn't say that I should say very clearly is that when you look at how God has structured relationships between genders he's structured in a complementarian fashion right uh, by which we mean uh, men have a role for leading, and, and the role of women is to complement that, to come alongside that, to enhance that in that way. So what's clear from the scripture is that both in the home and in the church, uh, men are called to lead. What's also clear in the scripture is that the church is itself God's new society, his new humanity. So our, our principal concern when we start to sort of zoom out into larger social questions uh, would be the church, the church embodying what we see in Eden, the church embodying uh, the, the gender role, the complementarity that we see in Eden. So now the question is, you know, how does that get reflected in the larger world? Uh, I think, number one, it gets reflected in our living out in our family, in our churches, uh, that kind of complementarity uh, as, a, as a kind of witness to the gospel and the truth of the gospel and, and God's design there. Uh, but number two, we see it also being distorted in the world, right? Uh, so we would see in the world lots of sort of relationships and, and gender, even, even understanding of gender, that, that are sinful distortions of what God, what God intends. Um, so our, our hopes for the world reflecting this, the broader society reflecting this, 
are, are diminished by our, our real recognition of the distortion of sin. Right? Uh, that means, I think, you'll find ladies and in in women in the world playing roles that at least we might question, um, given, given sort of a Christian view of gender roles. But I think we want to be careful there because um, we, we see even godly women playing significant leadership roles in, in the wider world. I, I think of that, that woman that, that, that I'm married to who's described in Proverbs 31, uh, that, that virtuous woman. I'll introduce you sometime. That, <laughs> that, that virtuous woman who is clear her, her, primary sort of, um, her primary concern is the care of her home. And yet the reach of that concern and the reach of her giftedness uh, includes entrepreneurial activity out in the world. Uh, so I personally, and this would be good discussion for any of the other brothers to weigh in, I don't understand the scriptures to prohibit women from playing those kinds of roles in, in the wider society, um, even though I, I do understand uh, the scriptures to teach very plainly for godly women uh, to, to, to order themselves under their husbands, to submit to their husbands and their husbands' leadership and that structuring of the relationship is to be reflected both in the home and the church. Is that helpful? Am I getting that what you were asking? Then? Okay. Thanks, brother. Other questions? This one over here. Okay, thank you. Is this working? Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems that leadership, am I right, is to make decisions, take decisions. No, I, would, I wouldn't reduce it solely to that. So, so, for example, when we come to Ephesians 5 and we see the picture of leadership there, um, godly leadership, Christian leadership, is servant. Um, to, to care for others, not to lord it over others. Uh, so we're called as husbands, for example, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to give ourselves up for her, to wash her in the water of the word, to, to cherish and to nourish her. Um, certainly decision-making is a part of leadership, um, but it, it's not the whole of it. Uh, it's not even in Ephesians 5 sense the bulk of it. Right. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a question up in the blue shirt. I don't need that. I taught Sunday school in a nursing home. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, what do you want me to say? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that notion of um, treating her as a weaker vessel and treating her as an heir together to life um, is, is really saying that as husbands, as, as leaders in our homes, we're to accord our wives really a place of honor. Right, so weaker vessel, if we think of that in, in nautical terms, um, you, you may have a, a troop carrier um, that's surrounded by battleships, right? Uh, and so they're, they're protecting the troops. They're protecting that, that weaker vessel, that more profess, that more, that more, um, um, yeah, vulnerable. Thank you, vulnerable vessel in that sense. Um, and so our ministry to our wives, brother, this is this is important for us to get. Our ministry to our wives. It's not about dictation. You know, it's not about reducing our wives to secretaries. You know, it's not about, okay, I'm, I'm the leader in the home, and so what that means is, woman, 
you know, bring me a cold one while I watch. You know, it's, that's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. So that Christian leadership, whether you're talking about leadership in the church or whether you're talking about leadership in your home, that leadership that models Christ is service. It's an interesting sort of thing. Even as we're called to be the head, we're called to be at our wives' feet. You know, even as we're called to, to sort of lead, we're, we're simultaneously called to, to serve. Um, and so it, there's to be a cherishing. There's to be a, a teaching her the word, to wash in the water of the word. In a, in a very real sense, our wives should be far more beautiful on the day of their deaths than they were on the day of their marriage. They, they are to be far more radiant in Christ's likeness than the day that we began to court them and to marry them. That's, that's what Ephesians 5 is telling us. He tells us that Christ has loved the church in such a way and, and washes the church in such a way that he receives her as a, as a radiant bride unto himself. And so it is with our wives. When they're seen out and about and seen with their friends and, and um, who knew them when they were 20, now they see them when they're 40 and 45, their friendship marvels. They say, sweetie, what is your secret? How is it that you look younger? How is it that you look more radiant? How is it that you look more beautiful? And our wives, we want our wives' reflexive answer to be, without hesitation, my husband loves me so well. My husband loves me. See, our our, our love is to beautify them, to serve them, to cherish them, to make them more radiant than that day they wore the white dress. That the splendor is to be in their face and in, and in their souls because of the way we are priests in our homes and, and care for them in our homes. Um, and so the, the weaker vessel is to be nourished in that sense and built up and, and beautified in that way. Is that helpful? Thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Yes. I will stand because I'm rather too short to speak sitting down. Um, I love the concept of the, the big rocks and getting the, the big rocks in place first. And clearly I think um, that the first one, our relationship with God, is the biggest rock. Uh, please confirm to me that I'm right in thinking that the other two aren't in descending order, um, that we shouldn't think of work or our relationship with uh, creation as more important than our relationship with society and our wives. That's exactly right. So I, I would think the order is God first, wife second, children third, work four. The reason I would say that is because when we come over to looking at leadership in the church, for example, how you lead your home is a prerequisite to ministry and, and, and vocation. Right? So in another way of saying that, I think if you're going to sacrifice anything, sacrifice your career, sacrifice your work. You know, if you're going to leave anything undone, if you're going to be unaccomplished in some way, be professionally unaccomplished and a rock star in your home, you know, and, and, and a celebrity with your children, you know. So, so, I mean, how many of us can, can testify we didn't have much, but we were loved by our parents? That's the testimony you want. You know, you, you probably heard the joke, you know, I've, I've never seen anyone on their deathbed saying, I wish I spent more time at work. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not how we end life. But if we have regrets at the end of the life, what are our regrets? I wish I'd done more for the glory of God. I, I, I wish I'd have been home more. That's what we regret at the end of life. And the reason it's a regret, the, the fact that it's a regret is a signal that there is a prioritization. And it is God, it is wife, it is children, 
then work. Let me say just a word about wife, then children. It's clear from Genesis chapter 2 that family is meant to be marriage-centered, not child-centered. Right? So the husband and wife leave and cleave and become one flesh. Then they have these little vipers in diapers that, 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 that you know, they, they grow up. And guess what happens when they grow up? They go off and form families of their own. Now, guess what happened if you spent 20 years being child-centered rather than marriage-centered? They grow up, go off on their own, having seen, number one, a bad example, and you're left at home with this stranger. That's why so many marriages in their later years, you're surprised. You see them for 20, 25 years, and they look fine. And then when the kids are grown and gone, the marriage falls apart. They've not been nurturing this, that first relationship. Husband and, uh, husband and wife. That's more foundational than parent the child. And if you build your life around taking your child to the, to the Little League game, and there's not, I'm not knocking that, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying if you're out of priority in terms of Little League games and music recitals and, 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 and buying things for your children and neglecting your spouse, that's an area for repentance. It's an area for confession and accountability and repentance because we only work well when we're ordered well. We're built to, to live according to a certain order. God, wife, children, work. Flip any of those, and, and whatever has been superseded will be sacrificed, will be hurt. It's a great question. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, got I've been uh, supremely blessed with the opportunity <laughs> uh, I've been supremely blessed with the opportunity to run my own business um, in my biggest passion and I'm learning the art of prioritization and mm. that becoming more a means to an end mm. but in living for the glory of God and how, how can you expand a little bit on how that looks like oh, um, in, in, in doing that as part of life that's a wonderful question. Thank you for that question. Let me recommend a book there. Let me recommend a couple of books. The interesting thing about biblical manhood and womanhood, you, you, you probably, every home ought to have uh, the sort of reference work by John Piper and Wayne Grudem called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, worth, the opening chapter is worth the price of the book. Right? So, big brown book, I think. used to be a big blue book. Uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Excellent stuff. Another book I want to recommend uh, also by Wayne Gruden is, um, is it Business by the Book? Business for the Glory of God. Business for the Glory of God. Business for the Glory of God. Uh, just any of you who are out in the business world, any of you who are owning uh, your own business and, and looking to lead your own business in a way that honors God, that's just a great, a great work to have. Um, I think I would say a couple things to you in the way of encouragement. Uh, one, as a business owner, uh, it's, it's, it's good, it's right, it's part of the, the kind of way in which we reflect God's glory as, as creators um, to, to, be, to be profitable, right? So, so seeking the profitability of your business is a good thing. Um, related to that is, is carrying out business with integrity. So God is glorified in your business as, as you keep your word, uh, as you deliver, as you promise, um, as you, as you, you know, honor your word to your own hurt uh, and are fair in all of your dealings. So God is, God is glorified uh, when we not only seek to be productive 
uh, in, in creation, in business, um, but we also seek to do that with integrity, with, with honesty, with respect, and all those kinds of things. Uh, and God is glorified when, you're, when, when he is seen to be greater as an interest to you than your business. Right? So I'm going back to the, to, to the point we were making earlier of, of prioritizing by denial. So seek profitability, yes, but not at the expense of, of meaningful, deep, significant involvement in the life of your local church, in the life of your children. If that means we're not going to be open on Saturdays, that's probably going to have a material effect you know, on, on your bottom line. Uh, but that might be the kind of choice that honors God and glorifies God. Uh, my, my favorite fast food restaurant, can anybody guess? Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. Not because they're closed on Sunday. I hate that they're closed on Sunday. <laughs> I drive by all those closed Chick-fil-A, like, man, you know, it would be great to have some lemonade. I, I, love, I love their food. I do actually honor the fact that they're closed on Sunday. Right? It's a decision the founder has made very early on, in part because, of, part because of his belief. I think it's a godly decision. And, and so I would encourage you then, the third thing there is to, to sort of prayerfully think about your business and think about places where uh, you may either make positive decisions to do certain things or you may make positive decisions not to do certain things that, that even though they may be costly from a business perspective, um, would, would signal a real honoring of God, a real glorifying of God. Final thing is, you know, honor and treat your employees well. I mean, there's, there's much in the scriptures, Proverbs, other places, um, that, that call us to do that. In fact, just spending some time regularly in Proverbs uh, would, would be helpful in thinking about how do I conduct business in a way that honors God. It's a great question. Yeah, Peter. Just cool. Um, how can the male uh, eldership of the church best communicate, best respond to, uh, best love, and meet the needs of the women in the church? Excellent question. Um, I spent six years in Washington D.C., so I became very skilled at not answering questions. <laughs> no, actually, that's sort of the topic of the next of the next talk. So we'll we'll give some attention to that. If I don't ask that question again in the, in the follow-up Q&A from there, Nigel. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you had a microphone. Last question. Okay. In your uh, prioritization, you said it's worship of God, uh, wife, children, work. Mm. Where does involvement in church and Christian ministry fit into this? It seems to be a tension between the first and the last. Yeah, there, there is. Um, so here's a distinction that I would make. Um, Worship, I don't think, I'm looking to John, I'm looking my other Pat, Dave in the back, looking to the other elders. Worship, I don't think, is ever used in the New Testament as a description of our public assembly, but of, but of all of life. Is that right? Is that fair? Uh, so of all of life. Uh, so in that first point, we're really talking about a way of living before God. You know, living before the face of God and, and thinking of everything that we do, Colossians 3, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord as, as an act of worship. 
I would draw a distinction between that and, and vocation or calling, right? So that you, you'll have elements of worship in both places. But uh, on the one hand, I'm talking about a life that's yielded unto God uh, in that first point. And then in the fourth point, we, we would be talking about elder, deacon, um, vocational pastor, uh, and so forth. And, and there, I think, uh, again, I think the scriptures make this case. If, if, if being an elder means neglecting my family, I can't be an elder. You know, If, if being a senior pastor means not, not, not raising my children well, I, I can't be a senior pastor. And again, 1 Timothy 3 and other places uh, sort of spell out that as, as a prerequisite um, to the ministry. Uh, so that's, that's the distinction I think I would draw. I, I hope that, that helps between a, a life, Coram Deo, before the face of God and, and kind of a vocation, whether it's a lay vocation or... Um, you know, full-time service in that. That's great. Cool. Listen.